0: Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com podcast. My guest today is Sheetal Mars, who is CEO of Progressive Care. We will discuss chronic pain, substance abuse, opioid dependency, and alternative pain management. According to promotional materials, Sheetal has guided Progressive Care and its wholly-owned subsidiary, PharmCo, LLC, on a rapid growth trajectory with the signing of an investment deal. And she has focused on creating and implementing systems that improve patient adherence and provide risk management practices for physicians and providers. She spearheaded Progressive Care's new campaign focused on pain management alternatives to opioids. Sheetal, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with something really basic. We all think that we know what it is, but what do we mean when we say chronic pain? So chronic pain is where you
1: feel like you need to take some form of pain management medication multiple times a week. So if you feel pain every single day, that's chronic pain. If you feel pain every single week, that's chronic pain. With regular frequency, you are turning to a medication to manage your pain. Um, some patients may not use over-the-counters, may not use medication, but let's say you, have, uh, you seek massage therapy or chiropractic services or, or the ser- services of an orthopedic practitioner because you experience pain either several times a week or once a week, but with a regular frequency.
0: What about once a month or once every three months? Would that still be chronic pain?
1: That would not necessarily be chronic pain because it's acute and situational. However, if it's predictable, for for some patients, let's say you have pain that occurs with menstruation or you have endometriosis or like me, I have, I have, uh, back pain that kind of pops up every three months or so. That's not exactly chronic pain, but it is a, a pain situation that you are dealing with on, on a routine basis throughout your year. It's predictable. You know it's coming. You know what causes it. Chronic pain is, is much more frequent than
0: that. So there is a distinction, and it's worth noting because if it's less frequent, then it's no longer chronic pain, even though you can predict it.
1: Right. Because you wouldn't be taking medication. You wouldn't be seeking a practitioner to deal with it on a daily or a a frequent basis, daily or weekly basis.
0: What do we mean when we say substance abuse? Where do we cross the line from taking that medication when you have PMS or a migraine or back pain where does that go from just medication and become abuse so
1: with with substance abuse and substance abuse and substance dependency gets blurred very frequently, and especially with patients that are experiencing chronic pain. But substance abuse tends to refer to taking a medication outside the scope of which it was prescribed or in excess of the dosing recommendation. So if you are supposed to take a, let's see, even take an opioid pain medication once a day and you're taking two, five times a day, that's substance abuse. Or if you're turning to that opioid medication for recreational purposes, or for psychological purposes. And that would be outside the scope of which it was per- prescribed and that would be abuse. Substance abuse can also extend to the over-the-counters. I know plenty of people who are taking aspirin, you know, 10 times a day or taking two aspirin every hour and that also is substance abuse. Um, so it's not always for the the psychological effect of getting high, you can abuse substances and take things outside of its recommendation. But then there's that it gets blurred with dependency because initially we feel pain. But with opioids especially, you build up tolerance. So it takes more of the opioid to provide that pain relief than you needed at the beginning. So you are abusing that opioid, but you're also now dependent because you experience pain. There's a reason you're taking it.
0: And that was going to be my next question. <laughs>
1: it,
0: what do you do when the medication or the, the drugs that you're taking aren't doing or aren't working the same way that they worked at the beginning, And whether it's opioids or something else, where the effect wanes over time?
1: Well, And that's the, that's the hard part of any tolerance. One of the things that I kind of espouse, personally and professionally in in talking with patients and talking with friends and family is that the more is not always better so if you find that your medication is becoming less and less effective maybe you're on the wrong medication and and patients tend to start that with with over-the-counter drugs they will take tylenol they'll take two tylenol every six hours as it's recommended. Then that goes every four hours, and then it goes every two hours. You think you just need to take more of it. But maybe by knowing that you're taking it outside of the recommended dosing, maybe Tylenol isn't the medication you need. Maybe you have a problem where it requires surgery, maybe it requires some other therapeutic treatment, and Tylenol is not the answer. And the same thing with opioids. As you build up tolerance, You're going to experience withdrawal. You're going to experience that pain amplify. So you're in your mind, you're going to think you need even more. So instead of taking it twice a day, now you're taking it three times a day and taking it four times a day, and then you're taking even more each time you dose. So instead of one, it's two, instead of two, it's three. It becomes a very hairy monster, and that's how you develop addiction, is that, when you stop taking it, when the body stops receiving that, that, that drug in the system, it's going to trigger a psychoactive response that tells you you need it. And how that manifests itself a lot of the times is pain. So you started this medication for pain. Your body very well may have healed from the reason you needed this to begin with. Let's say you had, you know, a leg surgery or knee surgery and your knee is healed. But when you stop taking the medication, you feel immense pain in your knee. So you think it's not. You think it's not healed. You think your body is in pain, so you take more medicine to heal the psychoactive response, the psychological response of addiction. And it's very hard to separate, especially when you go to the doctor, which pain you're feeling. Are you feeling pain from withdrawal, which is a thousand times worse? Or are you feeling pain from something physiologically happening within your body, some kind of tear, some kind of uh, inflammation or hernia or whatever else. And that's the rub for doctors is trying to figure out with patients that are suffering with opioid abuse and dependency where where the line is, you know, where where is reality. And And for patients that are experiencing this, I want to be very clear, that pain is real. They feel that. They're not making it up. They feel that. And so I think a lot of times we have a tendency to belittle patients that are seeking opioid treatment or are dealing with opioid addiction or or abuse or dependency. They think they're less than. They think they're not worthy of proper care when that could not be further from the truth. But on the other side of that, for patients that are experiencing that, they're going to have to tolerate some pain, and that's agony. Agony. It's gut wrenching because switching them to something that's going to be more effective for the pain they feel physiologically means means taking them off the thing that's helping them psychologically, helping them, helping you know cure the, the the monkey that's on the shoulder. And so there's a lot of give and take there. But I want patients that are experiencing this, I want families that are going through this, to understand that. When a patient comes to you and says, I'm in pain, for them that pain is real, and we need to respect that.
0: And your company owns several pharmacies, actual pharmaceutical dispensaries, as it were, Family Physicians RX uh, or uh, Five Star RX, is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. We, we, are now, we now have four locations. Uh, One in Miami-Dade County in Florida, one in Broward County, Florida, one in Palm Beach, Florida, and one in Orlando.
0: How many people are we talking about when we're talking about chronic pain at the national level? Why has this become so huge? Is it that we have an aging population? Is it that we have people engaged in extreme sports, where are these chronic pain patients getting their pain, as it were?
1: I would wager a guess. First, let's, let's talk about how many. We're, we're talking about 50 million Americans or more because there are a lot of patients that don't report chronic pain, especially patients that are using over-the-counter uh, medications to manage it. So 20% or more of the American population is suffering from chronic pain. And there's a variety of reasons that is the case. Uh, I would wager to guess that a lot of the reason we have so much chronic pain is stress, is the food we eat, is the lifestyles we live. And then on top of that, add to that extreme circumstances which is injury, car accident, sports injury, um, hip injury, just normal aging injuries, arthritis, things like that and and then illness, so if you have cancers you you're gonna deal with extreme chronic pain and 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 the like um I know h i v patients tend to have a significant amount of pain, and there are a lot of other ailments where um you have neurological disorders or some kind of genetic syndromes that have chronic pain associated with them but for the for the majority of Americans and we know this we go out we get older we we tough it out we go to work we manage and stress amplifies that pain and i i, I know most Americans feel some type of stress every single day and that's going to make pain worse we also don't take care of our bodies very well we don't exercise as often as we need to leading to lower back pain we not sleeping enough all these reasons and then and then diet and nutrition is a big part of it. A lot of a lot of people don't realize that their chronic pain is caused by the food that they eat. And and not understanding that we should be eating the food that loves us back. I love a lot of food but it doesn't always treat me well and I need to know which foods are those and it's not the same for every person. And know that okay, if I'm gonna have ice cream I'm going to have some inflammation in my body later. I'm going to have some stiffness. I'm going to have some swelling if I have salt. We have to understand how our body reacts to each different kind of food and understand that that's going to play a role in our pain.
0: That's really interesting that you mentioned that because most of the time there is no mention of food and nutrition linking it to pain and inflammation and all of these varying reactions to food types that you just mentioned. What percentage do you think, and I imagine this is a difficult number to pin down, but what percentage of that fifty million that you just shared with us would you estimate is directly resulting from poor food choices?
1: I would probably say about eighty percent. And that sounds that sounds harsh. Because, you know, people, there's lots of reasons people eat, and there are pe- people that eat relatively healthy that still experience chronic pain. I, I have I have patients tell me all the time that they didn't realize that they were lactose intolerant until they were in their 40s, and that was causing them pain, or they they have a gluten sensitivity or something like that. But, you know, high-fat, high-salt, high-sugar diets, which we all have, is going to play a role in how our body, you know, uh, how our body moves and how it works. We, you know, the vast majority of Americans don't hydrate. We are not drinking enough water and and making sure our our body is lubricated. That causes pain. Dehydration causes a great deal of pain. So, I I would suggest that 80% of the people that are experiencing chronic pain could experience some relief Maybe not all, but some relief from a modification of, of diet and, and hydration.
0: What kind of pain does dehydration cause? It can cause
1: some severe ones. It can cause headaches, uh, shooting pains in the extremities. It can cause shivering and, and jitteriness. Um, it can even cause stomach distress. When you're not properly hydrated, you know, the entire digestive system isn't properly hydrated. And then it causes constipation, which causes you bowel problems. So we could be experiencing that shooting pain that you can experience dull pain. Every patient is different. But it only takes maybe a day or two of poor hydration to start feeling that pain. Then you start feeling sick. You start feeling run down. And then you're going to turn to things like aspirin when really what you need is, is water.
0: That's uh, really amazing that 80% of the chronic pain we're looking at in this scenario is related to food choices and lack of enough water in our diets. I I think
1: that, not that it's all caused by that, but I think that 80% of patients would benefit experience pain relief by modifying that. I know as you get older, especially when you're getting into your 40s and, and you have shoulder issues and joint issues, sometimes that damage is done. You're going to have the, the the start of arthritis. You're going to have stiffness. You're going to have stuff from, you know, childhood injuries. But I know for many patients that, especially ones that have joint joint damage, that ex- eating certain foods makes that joint pain worse and of makes course. that need for chronic pain management through medicinal therapies more necessary whereas if they had set, had limited some exposure they wouldn't need as much medication or need it at all
0: out of that 50 million any idea how many are children I mean, we're talking about a population of I think the last time I looked, was about 312 million people. So 50 million is a lot. Are, is that including a large percentage of children? I don't think it's including a large percentage of children, and I don't
1: know how much uh, is reported on childhood chronic pain. I know that there are patients, very young patients, that have sports-related in- injuries or some kind of childhood ailment. That experience chronic pain but I'm not sure about the data on, on what percentage of of Ameri- of American children are experiencing chronic pain because a lot of that is managed by their parents and I'm not sure how how it's reported
0: of course these are all difficult to get your arms around I'm sure so let's talk about the opioids this big hairy monster I think that you called it what What do we mean? Let's start with something really basic. What do you mean when, what do we all mean when we say opioid epidemic? So what we mean by opioid epidemic
1: is, is the number of people that are increasingly turning to opioid medication for recreational purposes or dependency and are therefore subject to severe health risks and even death and the reason why we talk about opioid epidemic is because at this point you know over 120 people 130 people die every single day from some type of opioid overdose and every family knows somebody who has abused opioids who has used opioids or who has become addicted or has died and so Every facet of American life is now affected by the prevalence of opioids in, in society. And we're seeing now the downturn, but we're not seeing a downturn in deaths. And one of the reason that reasons that is is we kind of took this hard stance on opioids. Opioids are bad. People who use opioids are bad, so let's take it away from them. We're addressing it only from the supply side of this equation, that if we don't give out any opioids, there won't be any opioids to abuse, except if you have developed a high tolerance to opioids and you have extreme pain, and there are lots of patients that have you know, spinal fusion surgery, damaged nerves in their legs where they're going to have pain for the rest of their life, you take away the opioid, which they are both addicted and dependent on, they're gonna to turn to things like heroin. I have, I have friends even close to me whose parents have died because they felt they had no other choice. They either, you know, they can't get any more opioids, which we can argue and debate whether that was a good or bad thing, but instead they either killed themselves or turned to heroin or turned to some kind of a list street opioid. And so I think there was a rush to end the epidemic, but in the harshest way possible. And I I think we need to, yes, we should address the supply side and not let there be opioids in the hands of people who don't need them or who want to do bad things with them. But the other side is treating patients with humanity and dignity and saying, okay, we understand that opioids are killing you and opioids are not good for you, But you shouldn't just be left with nothing. You shouldn't be left with no alternative, nothing to, to help manage your pain, no hope, no, no recourse for managing your life now. We just say no opioids, go fend for yourself. And that wasn't, I don't believe that was the correct way of doing it. And a lot of times doctors, when a patient comes in and they want opioids, obviously they're, they're addicted and they're dependent. We treat them as an addict instead of a patient. And we say these patients are too hard to manage. All they want is drugs. They don't want anything else. Well, that's very well true. But who's the one that gave them opioids? We made them addicts. The healthcare profession made them addicts. So don't we bear some kind of responsibility for caring for them now? For helping them finding, you know, I say finding a cure, but finding a pathway forward for them to come off this substance that is hurting them, hurting their families, hurting whatever is ailing them, and getting them treatments or therapies or whatever else may be so that they can live their life to the best extent possible and give them quality of life with their their families. I think that's important, too. We have to deal with the demand side of opioids as well if we want to have any headway in managing not even just opioid abuse but drug addiction in, in general.
0: How many people are we talking about in the United States who are or have? let's well, let's like whatever number you have available, people who have taken opioids or people who are taking opioids at the moment. I think it's
1: in in the tens of millions who have ever taken
0: opioids.
1: Um, just people who have not used. Opioids properly is probably 12 million or so in the in the last year.
0: How many people have? Troubling. Does anybody know? Do you know how many people have died from opioid overdoses?
1: Let's see. And the last statistic I have was from 2017, which is um, 47,000.
0: Over what? Just the one year?
1: Over over one year about 115 a day. And and the thing is a lot of people seem to say that the opioid overdoses are occurring on on Vicodin or OxyContin or Percocet. That's not what people are overdosing on. What people are overdosing on is heroin and fentanyl. And the reason they've overdosed on those opioids is because they've gotten to the place They started with prescription opioids. The vast majority of opioid deaths are not, that that instance of of overdose is not on the prescription, but on the illicit drug they turn to after they develop tolerance. So we can solve the prescription side of this. We can eliminate, uh, eliminate the prevalence of prescription opioids on the street but then you have the next thing is if you have a population that is in need of opioids because they are addicted or are, have drug-seeking behavior for other reasons, there's still a stream of access illicitly to opioids. And that's not just the pills. That's that's things like heroin, or, which are imminently more dangerous in, in the acute sense. One dose of heroin can kill you, where it's highly unlikely that one one dose of Vicodin will kill you. But it only takes five days of, of taking an opioid to, to develop a dependency, to develop an addiction.
0: So if these opioids are so addictive, should there be I, – I heard you say earlier that you can't just throw opioids out the window, that they're – it's still a need, that there are still people with legitimate need for them, perhaps people at at end-of-life stages for whom this is the only way to alleviate their suffering. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would.
1: So I'm, because I I work on the the healthcare side, I I try not to vilify any particular medication. Opioids have a place. I, I believe it. I believe their place is for severe, acute pain management. So, for instance, I, I recently went to the hospital. If if you're you know bleeding out and injured, that's the appropriate time for for an opioid. If you're a war veteran and it's a a battle situation, that's the perfect time for an opioid. If you're dealing with terminal cancer or even severe cancer or a a deformity of some sort of your neurological system, although I think there are better things to treat neurological pain than opioids, but I can understand the extreme nature of the pain that you would turn to opioids. There is a place for it. I think what happened is – A lot of doctors and a lot of patients got told that these medications were as addictive as they were and that this is the one size fits all for all pain. You got pain, there's an opioid for that. And it made dealing with pain very simple. You got pain, here's a prescription, go, go manage it. And that was imminently dangerous. These are strong medications and they should be used for strong and severe circumstances. If you're in the hospital, absolutely you should be afforded an opportunity to have pain management. There should be nobody screaming in a hospital in pain if that's the kind of pain you have there's there's reasons why opioids were were developed but I think the vast majority of patients, even patients who are post op, even patients who are post op who could have been spared opioid abuse because they didn't need opioids to begin with that you know, a combination of Tylenol and ibuprofen would have worked. That, you know, topical anesthetics, topical analgesics would have worked, and they would have not needed the opioid at all. They might have been uncomfortable. They might have had a little bit of pain, but they wouldn't be in in screaming pain. It would have been tolerable. But instead we said, okay, everybody who's post-op, everybody who's ever had a tooth removed, gets an opioid prescription for 30 days, and we're not talking about just 30 pills. We're talking about take two pills twice a day. So patients were walking home with 180 pills, and some of them used it all because that's what the prescription says, and some of them use some for whatever pain, and they keep it in the closet or in the cabinet as they're just in case, and that left it open for them to sell, for their kids to use, for them to abuse, and that's how we ended up here is is a gross misunderstanding of a medicine and and there's there are people who are responsible for that manufacturers absolutely misled people doctors absolutely should have known better should have looked harder should have wanted to know more should have questioned whether this was right and should have taken better care of their patients and and pharmacies who can see the red flags right in front of them and, and purposefully acted to ignore them, and and still do. We still see raids happening at pharmacies all the time. We still have doctors prescribing uh, opioid medication for for the money. So there are definitely people to blame for that, but now we are where we are, and we have to find solutions.
0: What was the solution before opioids came along? I mean, pain has been with us since man is man. This isn't new, and certainly chronic pain is not new. It may be aggravated by some of these changes in diet and changes in nutrition, the modernization of the food industry, the big food, all of those things. But pain has been around forever. What did we used to do for pain?
1: So, what we used to use for pain were things like tylenol and and aspirin, and you know I hate saying this, but yeah, we turned you know the Americans turned to drugs, you know people were managing pain with alcohol, people were managing pain with with you know marijuana or or the like. They were turning to other drugs um or they toughed toughed it out in deals because there was nothing available to them, and that's a lot of people where There is nothing to manage your pain, so you just sucked it up. So on one hand, you know, we have advances in in medicine and technology where, you know, we can help more patients who are in pain rather than before. So one one part of it is good. We just chose the wrong method of dealing with it. I think that there there needs to be some kind of return to a back-to-basics. If we go back to, to 19, 1950s, 1960s, where having an opioid in every, in every cabinet was not necessarily the case, what do we do? So if opioids are no longer the thing, what do we do? And that's, that's where I find the discussion very much lacking, is we talk a lot about how to get opioids off the street. But we have not talked about how do we now treat pain? How do we describe it? How do we feel it? And one of the things I've talked about a lot is that no two patients' pain are alike. No they don't feel it the same way. Two women can walk in with menstrual pain. One will not feel it at all and the other one will be dying. And and literally so. They're they're screaming, they're crying, and that pain is absolutely one hundred percent real. And the diagnosis is the same menstrual cramps. So we need to understand how our individual bodies experience pain, and then treat pain as per, as personalized as we possibly can. And that's not easy. Pain is subjective. It's hard to look at it for a doctor and say, what's the standard of care? We always want to look for the standard of care. It makes life more efficient. You have this. You present with these symptoms. This is what you get. But with pain, because it's so... Specific because it's so unique. We have to get to the crux of it and we have to address how a person feels it. You know, one of the things I, I talk about a lot with when patients go to the hospital, I tell them, tell your doctor how it feels. Is it dull? Is it achy? Is it shooting? Is it stabbing? All these words matter to paint a picture for the doctor on what you're experiencing. And, and all those that picture will help him understand whether the pain is coming from the muscle, from the bone, from the ligaments, from the organs, from uh, from your your nervous system. And no, you should not be prescribing the exact same medication for all of those cases. If you have nerve pain like diabetic neuropathy, you would never prescribe an opioid. Opioids don't treat nerve pain. But if we just say, oh, I'm in pain, and that's all the doctor knows, pain equals standard of care equals these are the set drugs we prescribe for, for pain. And we need to change that. And that's going to be a tough road is figuring out the algorithm of of managing individualized pain.
0: What do other countries do? We are not alone in the world. There are a lot of other countries that are dealing with Healthcare issues and all of these chronic illnesses that we've talked about, all of these issues stress, lifestyle, injury, aging, arthritis these are ubiquitous. How are other countries dealing with the issues? It depends upon where you
1: are. I know that in Europe they also have been dealing with opioid abuse. I think there's, I think we have a cultural problem in, in the U.S. where we have, you know, two-pronged issues. One, how we perceive our healthcare, how we deal with it, how we manage it, um, access to healthcare, access to addiction treatment. Um, I think our work culture pays, plays a big role in our susceptibility to, to opioid abuse because we're not just dealing with we're not just taking opioids to manage pain, we're taking opioids to manage stress, to to manage other things. We're we're taking it for its psychoactive properties and and not taking it just to manage pain. I think other countries have have different issues, but they also so if you're looking at the developing world, they don't have the access to opioids like we do, but you know what they have access to? They have access to illicit drugs. So they have – it's not an opioid abuse problem. They have a drug problem. You know, they have a cocaine problem. They have a heroin problem. They have a, a different kind of avenue for patients or for people to to have – to satisfy a drug-seeking behavior. So every country is dealing with some form of this. And to to deal with it, we kind of need to get to the root cause of why – people seek the pain treatment that they do but outside of just dealing with a chronic pain why do people seek you know drug drugs in general why are we seeking that opioid high why are we seeking that feeling in the first place you know there's that that recreational culture in in the youth that to try to feel that to feel that in in our brains and in our bodies this escapism this Zero tolerance for discomfort or for pain or for sadness that we go and we turn to, to substances and we should examine what it is about us as humans that that leads us down that path. And I think in the U.S. we we have I think we have significant more stress. We have a relative poverty issue where we have a big difference between people who who have and 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 don't have, and that causes that perception, and that causes anxiety, and that causes depression, and that causes a sense of hopelessness that leads to, you know, le- makes us vulnerable to to abusing therapies that that cause um, a euphoric feeling in our minds. And and then there are our food and and everything else that that plays a role in this. And so if we went back to the beginnings of of who we are and what we promote in this country and what we promote for our well-being and and what's important in life, that I think we we do a lot better in solving this crisis because we're addressing it from two areas. We're we're addressing the supply of opioids and we're addressing the need for opioids. And and chronic pain, even if you get rid of opioids, if you have chronic pain, won't go away. You're still going to have patients, even if you fix the food thing, even if you fix the stress thing, there's still going to be injury. There's still going to be sickness. You're still going to have patients that need medication. We have to develop the medications and the therapies of the future for these patients to prevent the next generation of of addiction and dependency, to prevent even the smallest population of addiction and dependency. If we can eliminate that, if we can figure this out, now, in our psychology, in our biology, in our way of life, then we can do a lot more for our health and well-being in the future, and, and then we can say that this isn't an epidemic anymore.
0: What do you say to people who argue that it's laziness that drives people to reach for pain medication, that instead of changing their lifestyle, instead of focusing on the food that they eat, the way that they exercise, all of these things that we've been talking about, minimizing their stress, that they just go for the easy fix, go to the doctor and ask for a prescription or pop a Tylenol or whatever, analgesic. How much truth do you think there is to that?
1: I think laziness is the wrong word because it has such a negative connotation because every human – that I know, and I don't know about you is is that you know we all need to lose weight, you know we we fad diet, we we don't exercise, we say we'll do it tomorrow, but laziness has a has a connotation on character, and I don't think that laziness is the right word. I think we have a perception that feeling discomfort and feeling stress is wrong. And we, we tend to, as people, beat ourselves up. And we tend to get depressed. And when we get depressed and we have low self-esteem, the body has a response, almost a paralysis response. And, and people with depression will explain, will, will have a similar experience. Is that they say, just get up. That's easier said than done. For all of us. You're tired. You're worn down. You're, you're weak, you're in pain, whatever it is, is, you, you—you everybody's going to go to the path of least resistance. If someone told me tomorrow that I could have, you know, Serena Williams' athleticism and body by taking a pill, I think I'd take it. I, I think we all are conditioned to, to do that because doing the hard way is the hard way. It's the long way. And I think we need a a cultural shift that rewards doing things the long way doing things the right way doing things the hard way that that we don't really have
0: well and that brings me to the next question is clearly there is a segment of the population that has managed their chronic pain without becoming addicted that has either taken the opioids and not become addicted, which seems highly unlikely, or not taken opioids despite having pain. So what are they doing? What are the alternatives to pain? How can we manage the pain in healthier ways? So, And, then I, and
1: I love this question because I like talking about positive solutions, things that will help, help people change their lives. So I there the susceptibility to addiction is not the same person to person. So there are people and, and that's true even with, with drugs and alcohol. There are people who can take cocaine or or smoke marijuana or drink alcohol or whatever that will never get addicted ever. They can stop on a dime. Those those people are few and far between, but they do exist. I think for a lot of us, most of us, when ex- exposed to the stimuli, we were likely to be addicted. So the best case scenario is if you can, if the pain is not as so severe, is to avoid it. Find all, all go through all the avenues beforehand to find an answer. And then as a last result, you land on on opioids because you've tried everything else. That not being said. And we, and we talked about Checking it's like checking if your computer's plugged in. My computer doesn't work. Is it plugged in? The the first thing you check is hydration. The first thing you check is is your diet. Because that's easily to discern an immediate relief result. So if I have a lactose intolerance and I give up cheese and bread or or just cheese and 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 milk and ice cream, do I feel better. For a lot of people, that's the case, and that's why we see a lot of people turning away from meat-based diets and lactose-based diets and, and gluten because they realize that by eliminating these foods from their diet, they feel better. So that's one thing. You start with that. Then you go into... I always recommend that if you're feeling pain that frequently where there is no... Absolute catalyst. Like I didn't twist my ankle just now and I feel pain. I just wake up and I'm in pain. To see a doctor, even if you're managing it with an over the counter, over the counter medications, when used chronically, do you, will cause liver damage, will cause kidney damage, will cause stomach ulcers. If you're taking, you know, an over the counter pain reliever every single day or several times a week, go see a doctor. Find out why you feel pain. And at that point, you might realize that you might have an allergy, you might have an injury, you might have something that you can treat the underlying cause, and now you don't need the pain medication. Uh, the other things are trying non-invasive, non-medicinal therapies. I'm a big believer in some of these tried and true remedies like acupuncture, massage, uh physical therapy that if you're if you're feeling if your issue is muscle tightness, if your issue is some mild arthritis, if your issue is some kind of um sports injury, that these things or if your issue is stress management, I'll speak from experience on that, is I get you know, chronic neck and shoulder pain from stress. Every three months, I'm overwhelmed, and my back will give out because I hold a lot of stress tightness in my neck and shoulders. Acupuncture has worked really well for me. I don't I don't take, you know, Aleves or Tylenols or ibuprofen to manage my stress-related pain. Acupuncture worked great for me. Will it work great for everybody? Probably not, but it's worth exploring. And there's There's recent news out that Medicare is exploring covering that, and there are a lot of health insurance plans, more and more health insurance plans that are covering acupuncture. So asking your doctor about it is good, and seeing if that might help. Chiropractic uh, medicine can help a lot with with muscle ache and back ache and and spine situations and and tightness and, and things like that. So finding a A good, reputable practitioner is important, but some of these therapies can help. And then you have alternative medicine. And I've I've spoken a little bit um, about CBD and medical marijuana. Medical marijuana is not different from marijuana. It's just marijuana used for medicinal purposes. But it has shown a great deal of effectiveness in managing mild to moderate chronic pain without the addictive psychoactive side effects without well, the, without the severe dangerous side effects of, of opioids. So CBD is one of those things where there is no, um, psychoactive compound. There is no THC. So using that to manage inflammation is a, can be a good idea. It also, if you can, you can use that orally or topically. If you use it topically, you're not getting that systemic absorption. But if you use it orally, you know, you're going to get that, that, in body inflammation relief that that you need, but it's it is for mild to moderate. If you have severe, it's probably not going to work, and not it's not going to work for everybody. But also marijuana and opening that that up. I don't necessarily believe that the lung is the best delivery method for medicine on a pain level, so I would like to see more medicinal development of of THC or whole plant marijuana compounds. To be delivered in a in a better way, but that's an option too. And I, I I think that we're going towards these options. I think we need to caution ourselves and say that there's no magic bullet, there's no cure, there's no this is this is the end all be all. Because then we run the risk of the same thing. There's nothing that's going to work for everybody all of the time. So you're going to try. A lot of different things. You're going to try a combination of different things, which includes, you know, lifestyle changes, which includes stress management. And that's the thing we don't talk about enough is stress management. Stress causes a great deal of pain, physical pain, that we don't realize we're experiencing. And we think that if we say we're stressed, we're saying we're weak. Not true. We need to understand that stress plays a role in how our body functions. And stress management is, is a very key thing to managing pain, and, and it, it doesn't sound like an alternative, but it's a factor to realize. And then you have um, managing managing anxiety and managing a, depression. Antidepressants also can have therapeutic benefits for pain. So there's a lot of things to try. A lot, even medicines. There are a lot of medicines that don't have opioids in them that we can try before we ever reach an opioid. So there is hope out there. The problem is it's a long, hard, guess-and-check road to get there. And a lot of patients, you know, can't wait. The pain is that severe, and a lot of patients don't have the the time or the access or the capability to wait. And and so we need – these are the patients we got to focus on. These are the patients we got to help.
0: Tell us a little bit more about – CBD and medical marijuana, there's a lot of talk. There are a lot of vendors out there offering CBD and marijuana. Of course, now there's a number of states that have approved medical marijuana and just regular marijuana sales. How can our listeners understand what each of these is for but let's start with that. How can they okay. know, is this for me? Okay. So
1: that's, there's, the, there's the rub. Because with, with both of those, the education in the medical community is severely lacking. So there's a lot of misconception. There's a lot of misunderstanding. A patient can go to a doctor, and a doctor says, I'm never going to recommend marijuana or CBD because I'm basically recommending drug abuse. But this is the same doctor that, You know, five years ago was prescribing opioids. So I kind of find that silly. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of doctors out there that don't understand it. And so it can be very difficult for a patient to go and get answers from their medical professionals. There, there are some really great ones. And talking to your primary care physician is the first place to go. You should always try. You should always start. Now there's some, there's a wealth of research online. I always caution patients from, relying solely on online information because there's a lot of a lot of manufacturers of CBD specifically that will say that this cures cancer or this cures uh epilepsy or this cures something else and or this can can prevent you from needing chemotherapy or or something else and that's not true will it help may it may it help with your pain it may and it's worth exploring but to look at it as i will use this as a substitute for traditional medicine is highly dangerous so cbd and we'll talk about cbd first cbd does not have thc in it it is made from marijuana so let's take marijuana hemp and marijuana are essentially the same plant it's all cannabis there's a male and a female so one has flowering buds. That's that's marijuana. That's what we know, you know, through pop culture as as weed, the thing we smoke, the thing we get high on. Hemp produces he produces cannabidiols. Cannabidiols are naturally occurring, not just in cannabis. Cannabis has the highest concentration of it that we know of, but it is not the sole plant on earth that produces CBD. And our body naturally has cannabidiol receptors. We have an endocannabinoid system. What it does is I kind of dumb it down to it's an anti-inflammatory. So it has some of that therapeutic response of dealing with inflammation in the body, but it also cannabinoids like CBD have an effect on anxiety, have an effect on sleep. It kind of calms things down in the body if that makes sense. So that's how it deals with inflammation is it creates this calming of, of, our, of our nerves and our, our reactions so that we can feel less stress or feel, have a deeper sleep or feel less pain. So that's, that's the primary uses for CBD. A lot of patients have found successful use of C, manage, using CBD for children who are, have seizures, and I would strongly recommend that if you're going down that road and you have a child with seizures, or you have a loved one with seizures, and you're thinking about introducing CBD into their thre- treatment regimen, even if a doctor is not prescribing it or is not dosing it for you. To communicate with that child's doctor that that's what you're doing. CBD can have, and it it can increase the potency of different medications in your bloodstream. So it's important that your doctor knows that you're using it. Same thing with marijuana. But I think there needs to be a lot more study on how to use it. And I think patients would do would do much better if they had more reliable information from the scientific community. And I hope that these studies are are forthcoming, and I hope that we can start having some kind of standard of care and dosing instructions, because right now you can buy CBD over the counter, and if you're thinking about using it for your child, you have no idea how much to give them. And me as the pharmacy and, and the manufacturer are not allowed to tell you. We're not allowed to help you dose. And that's dangerous, because not that you can take too much, it's highly unlikely you can overdose, but you have no idea what results you're looking for. You don't know how much to take. You don't know what its effect on your body is going to be. So it. I hope we're getting to a place where we're going to have more regulation of CBD, but more transparency and more information. Getting to medical marijuana, and I know I'm talking a hell of a lot, getting to marijuana there is, because that THC, THC will enhance the potency of the CBD. So using them together creates more of a therapeutic benefit. Now, but you have that added side effect of that of that psychoactive feeling, that high feeling, which not everybody likes and not everybody wants. But THC does make that pain receptor, that pain relief, factor better it does depending upon who you are it can help with anxiety it does help with the management of a a lot of other ailments however i I go back to this i caution anybody that it should not be a substitution for standard care so if you have cancers or if you have something else you should be under the treatment of, of of a regular physician you should be communicating with your pharmacist But I think, you know, exploring that, reading the research, and communicating openly and honestly with your doctor, you can see how to use this, and you can test it. So if you're saying, I'm going to use medical marijuana, you know, three times a week, keep communicating with your doctor so that they can monitor how well you're improving or not improving. They can tell you it's doing nothing for you. You know, I think that's important, too. So if you're thinking about going down these roads, I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying don't explore it yourself. And as a matter of fact, I'm saying you pretty much have to explore it yourself. But be open and honest with with your with your with your family practitioner, with your primary care, with your specialist that this is what you're doing.
0: Let's say that you go down that path. One of the issues, certainly with CBD, seems to be that you have no idea what you're getting. As you were saying earlier, you might be getting something that's 100% CBD and you might be getting something that isn't CBD at all. How can you approach the CBD itself once that you've decided that you want to try this avenue?
1: That's the hard part. So we have... We have worked with companies that that uh, process CBD. What you would want to look for is a CBD company that doesn't balk at providing you with certificate of analysis. You want to know that what's in it is what's in it, and you want if you're going through the website, if they're not putting on their website or if they're not making available to you some kind of documentation that this has been tested for for purity and concentration, you should stay away from it. And there are a lot of great CBD companies out there that are would gladly provide any patient with the information that, that they're requesting. And if they're not, you, you need to steer clear. Um, the ones we, we have used, um, Hemp Meds is one of those that is open and honest um Buddhist Best from the Farm, which is spelled P H A R M. These are all companies. And then there are some that are recommended by um pharmaceutical wholesalers that are have been that they've done an analysis with and and tested. So you wanna know where they're getting their their hemp from. You want to know how it's processed. You know wanna know where it's processed, how it travels all that kind of stuff, before you buy. And if if you're not getting those answers, then you shouldn't trust it.
0: Where can our listeners get more information on these alternative options for pain management, such as acupuncture, massage therapy, chiropractic medicine, CBD, medical marijuana? Are there books, are there resources, are there websites, where would you refer them so that they can look at studies, for example, that address these issues? You were talking about children and epilepsy. I also understand that there have been studies that show promising results for people who have uh, schizophrenia and the use of CBD. So where can our listeners get more information from trustworthy sources? So
1: the the first first place to go and it's going to sound silly is 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 a doctor. And I say that knowing that there are a lot of doctors that don't have the the best wealth of information on the topic,
0: but there are
1: a lot of great doctors that can really talk about this and and that's a trusted person who can monitor you. So I'm going to start with with your doctor. Uh, my website, the FarmcoRx.com website, has some interesting articles that I've published that we've written about as as a pharmacy on the topic. There's a number of websites online. Mayo Clinic has has a great one that talks about this um, and talks about the alternatives in in kind of a a, a real layman's way. And it can be difficult because if you go start looking around at the websites, there's actually Hundreds of websites that will that will bring about the the studies and everything else and for every bit that says cBD is good, there's a website that says c b d is bad so it can be it can be very difficult to navigate the reputable sources um, Health and human services um, Medicare has a great portal for it that that can provide some education. And Medicare is looking at at covering some of this stuff because they're starting to realize. But Medicare also has some of these studies. And so looking at some of the government agencies, um, Department of Veteran Veteran Affairs, um, has has probably the biggest wealth of of information on acupuncture specifically, but physical therapy and, and the uses of that. So there's a lot of ways to go. But wherever you go, check to make sure that the, the publisher is disclosing all conflicts of interest, that you're reading an independent source, that it isn't sponsored by a lobbyist or isn't sponsored by a manufacturer, isn't sponsored by a pharmaceutical manufacturing company because a lot of times they bring their own agenda to it. So try to stick to hospital sources so Mayo Clinic is, is one of them. Cleveland Clinic is another. Um, stick to university sources. Uh, Harvard Medical Journal is one I rely on very heavily for, for information on this um, to start navigating, especially the studies. They have a, a great resource for that. And then and, and looking at, at websites of, of institutions, that have no financial gain in this. So university websites, University of Miami, things like that, where they, they're not trying to sell you a product. Those are the best places to look.
0: Sheetal, thank you for joining us from Hallandale Beach, Florida.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And to our audience, you have been listening to Sheetal Mars, who is Chief Executive Officer of Progressive Care, who discussed chronic pain, substance abuse,